Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Western leaders have launched another global infrastructure initiative after a previous one miscarried. What's the deal this time? Another attempt to compete with the Belt and Road Initiative? And Hong Kong is gearing up to mark the 25th anniversary of its return to Chinese rule. And the new chief executive will take office on July the 1st. What do you expect from this new next chapter? I spoke with Regina Ip, a veteran lawmaker, to find out. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. G7's answer to the Belt and Road Initiative? G7 leaders have announced a 600 billion US dollar global infrastructure program that aims to fund projects in developing countries. Called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, or PGII, the initiative is widely perceived as a rebranding of a similar short-lived idea rolled out at last year's G7 summit under the name Build Back Better World. What, if anything, is different this time? How will G7 countries ensure the projects align with what developing countries really need? And where does it fit among other major infrastructure projects, such as the Belt and Road Initiative? Joining me today from Washington, D.C. is Surab Gupta, a senior Asia-Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist at the Institute of China-America Studies, and in Beijing, Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy of the Chinese Academy. Academy of Social Sciences. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So uh, this sentence is really interesting. I'm going to go to Mr. Kupta first. Now, President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, says the program will provide an alternative or a choice for developing countries. Alternative to what? I don't think there's a need for an alternative or a choice. There's such a huge uh, financing gap in the, in, in the international infrastructure space that the Belt and Road and the G7's projects are most welcome to participate and, and enrich and, and, and raise people out, from, out of poverty. Of course, what, what she was talking about was competing with the Belt and Road, but the Belt and Road should be a partner and whatever money is put to infrastructure finance should be welcomed so that as long as it is not done in a zero-sum context. The White House says that the PGII will deliver game-changing projects to close the infrastructure gap in developing countries, strengthen the global economy and supply chains, and advance U.S. national security. Zhao Hai, how do you understand these objectives, especially the last one about U.S. national security? Well, that's uh, exactly revealed the real purpose of the PGII at this point. Uh, like you pointed out, that at this time there's a huge gap between the global supply and demand of infrastructure. If the G7 countries are indeed wanted to fill the gap and help developing countries, then their purpose and, and their activities should be working with China and other like-minded countries to improve and invest more into the infrastructure. However, they made it very clear the national security is very much the concern of this time of G7 countries and therefore competing with BRI on geopolitical and geoeconomic platforms would be more important than other uh, purpose of helping developing countries. So but this is very self-contradicting. Self 
Let's take a look at the situation in the United States, Mr. Gupta. Um, we know the infrastructure inside the United States is quite troublesome itself, is quite outdated. How, do the American, how would the American voters and people look at the, this idea of spending lots of money overseas to help developing countries improve their infrastructure while at home you're having old airports, old bridges, no high-speed railway? That's exactly the point. Uh, yes, in, in November of last year, they did put, for, put through a bilateral infrastructure agreement through Congress, so kudos to that. But that gets exactly to the point. There is such a pressing need for infrastructure in this country, and it has not been done right. Why should we think that it can be, that it can be done right and that the funds will be available in the first place? And, you know, we saw that the same sort of mentality with COVID the talk of doing good, good things for, for, the, for the world. But when COVID really struck and the vaccines came out, it was all for the Americans and all for and a few for other Western countries. And the poor people never got their hand on, on any uh, workable vaccine from the West, uh, from the United States, I should say. And I think that same dilemma is going to crop up again in this, in this area of investment that the US is going to face. Now, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Zhao Lijian responded, and uh, here's what he said on Monday. Let's take a listen. China always welcomes initiatives that promote global infrastructure. Such initiatives do not have to cancel each other out. What we oppose is moves to advance geopolitical calculation and smear the BRI in the name of promoting infrastructure development. Hi, let me go to you. Let's imagine that this time this idea really lands and really gets materialized instead of dying like the previous one. Uh, what will happen on the ground for those developing countries? Will they be really benefit from the greater variety of choices or alternatives they might have? Well, uh, I certainly hope so. I certainly uh, think that it would be great for the de developing countries to have more choices, more options. However, it's not alternative picking one, meaning that you have to give, on, give up another. Because China and other countries uh, like Turkey or other countries have uh, the power of developing uh, hard infrastructure like bridges, roads, you know, airports. Uh, and the developing, uh, developed countries have their advantages on more software-leaning uh, kind of improvement on infrastructure. So cooperation is the best way forward. However, if the developing countries are asked to follow one standard or one rules and then disregard the other and then exclude other countries from the overall uh, infrastructure projects, then they will be uh, you know, in this very uh, self-conflicting way and uh, hard to choice, to make the choice. So I think moving forward, if the developing countries, uh, I mean G7 countries insist on adopting their so-called high standard um, uh, infrastructure projects, then we'll have a problem. Why on earth do we have to have different projects? Why countries cannot cooperate, let's say? Wouldn't that be a much better idea, Zhao Hai? Once again, for instance, China already has a lot of uh, infrastructure projects in place, a lot of expertise, a lot of connections. And the Western countries, you know, if they're able to join hands with Chinese builders, wouldn't that be a much better idea and much, fe much more feasible as well? Well, uh, number one, I think at this point, it's very hard for Western companies to compete with China in infrastructure construction. So that's why they uh, utilize this smear campaign against China using all kinds of excuses, particularly political uh, value systems difference to attack China and try to exclude China. For instance, uh, the developing countries need uh, cost efficient infrastructure like communication system. 
And at this time, uh, United States and other countries insist that they should not use Huawei, ZTE, and other equipment because there's security flaws. So I think uh, it's very difficult for those countries to make the choice if they're not uh, being able to allow to choose cheaper, more cost-efficient Chinese infrastructure. However, these kind of infrastructure actually help developed countries uh, by developing their trade relations uh, with developing countries. So th it is very self-constructing, uh, uh, deconstructing uh, in terms of uh, applying this kind of PGII projects uh, without looking at potential of cooperation in many of those areas. The PGII is essentially a revamped Build Back Better World, as I mentioned, which was announced last year during the G7 summit. Um, Mr. Gupta, why is the West, it seems, the West is in a hurry to come up with their version of uh, infrastructure program for the developing countries. They have been sleeping for a whole decade after China brought up that idea of a Belt and Road Initiative. They, they say, we can't understand, we're not interested, we don't think this is going to work. And all of a sudden they are awake and they're anxious. They're trying to you know, catch up or surpass. What's going on? What's going on is that they realize if you need to beat something, you need to have something on the table. They were continually bad-mouthing what China was doing, but if you don't have an alternative, uh, it's, it's of no, no, no use. But what I would say is that this has been the case state of affairs for the last few years. We've had, the, the they, they passed the uh, Build Act in Congress in 2018, the MCC Modernization Act in 2018. There's been energy on this front, but at the end of the day, there's nothing to really show. I mean, think, things, think of something like the Blue Dot Network. Fairly good idea. Anybody knows what's happening with the Blue Dot Network? Has no. anything been... Exactly, and that, that gets to the exact point that... But what's the problem? So... Why do such ideas not get materialized? We have the B3, B3W project, right? It's, it's kind of just dead. Um, so what's the likelihood of this project finally materialized, uh, if at all, Mr. Gupta? I, I don't, uh, if it materializes, it'll materialize in a very low-key way and will materially not make much difference on the ground. But the real problem is they want to compete against China, but they don't have the will. They have some resources, but they don't have the will to commit to that. So they will talk a good game, but they can't walk their good game. And at the end of, this, at the, end of the day, people are not stupid. People figure this out. And that's why the expectations already are so low with regard to PGIA. Let's also take a look at uh, some other um, very unique develop or very new developments rather uh, about what's going to happen in Madrid uh, concerning the NATO summit. Uh, we understand that the Turkey, Finland and Sweden have signed a memorandum to back the Nordic countries joining NATO. And we also have uh, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and ROK President Yusuf Yeol also attending this summit. Chao Hai, uh, how do you read into the signs of potentially the kind of expansion that NATO is looking at. Should China brace for a storm? Well, I think the future uncertainty is increasing because at this point, it's very clear that NATO is changing its strategic concept from 10 or 12 years ago, Lisbon. Uh, and now they're adopting a new concept that aimed at not only the challenge of Russia, but also China. So that's why they're inviting uh, many members from uh, the Asia-Pacific area trying to uh, join with NATO and try to coordinating 
uh, with NATO. And uh, those policies in the future will be aimed at China, and they named many challenges coming from the rise of China. So I think uh, the world will experience a more turbulent time, and NATO's expansion globally will be a challenge for both China and many uh, other countries who want peace and development right. to be the main theme of the world. Right. Another thing, uh, Gupta, uh, try to be brief. The U.S. is leading many things, many concepts in the region. We have the Quad, we have the Alcos, we have the IPEF, we have the uh, PGII, and, and we also have the BP, uh, PBP, the partners in the Blue Pacific. Uh, so many new things. What's going on? What's going on in the minds of the United States? What's going on is it's a China minus strategy. Uh, we can't. We don't want to have direct zero-sum competition with China, so we'll try to shape the environment around China. And part of shaping the environment around China is try to have this framework, the cooperation frameworks, from which China is excluded. And frankly, China, apart from real hard security issues where they work through alliances, China sits at the heart of all these networks, and therefore most of these will, frankly, come a cropper. They will fail. Um, I don't. I don't know what the majority of countries and people need in this world. Right? More military uh, blocks or greater opportunities for development, railway, roads, economy, trade. Think about it. Anyway, we have to leave it there. Uh, many thanks to Saurabh Gupta, senior Asia Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist, and Zhao Hai from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Hong Kong's new chief executive will be sworn in on July the first, the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to Chinese rule. How will the new CE steer Hong Kong into a new chapter? Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why we love Dunhuang? You will have your answers. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. As the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region celebrates its 25th anniversary, the new Chief Executive John Lee will be sworn into office on July the 1st, together with the six SAR 
government. However, skeptics have voiced concerns over how democracy can survive given the changes that were made to the election methods. So what has been done to address those concerns and how will the new CE lead Hong Kong into a new chapter? I spoke with Regina Ip Lao Suki, a veteran lawmaker who will serve as the convener of the Executive Council on July the 1st. She is also the chairperson of the New People's Party. For the year 2021, Hong Kong's standing in terms of the level of rule of law actually remained unchanged, standing at 19th place out of 139 countries and jurisdictions around the world. And that's very much comparable to the UK, for instance, at the 16th place and Singapore 17th. Um, so it seems there is a gap between what is portrayed of where the city is, direct, is, is heading versus what has actually happened on the ground and according to international barometer exactly um, why is hong kong able to retain the status in terms of rule of law and what has enabled that well uh, you're right you know we're ranked 19 we are seven places above the u.s you know assessment of u.s system um because we continue to have an independent judiciary you know uh, we have open and transparent court proceedings all the safeguards of human rights like uh, habeas corpus, judicial review, legal aid continue to be functioning well, you know, and our judges are of high quality, you know, uh, the fact that um, there is no outflow of funds whatsoever. And there continues to be a lot of business interests in Hong Kong speak volumes about the confidence in our rules based system. For a lot of people, the election system in Hong Kong is nothing is not something that they're very familiar with. And it's definitely not the kind of one one person, one vote that people imagine. Actually, in the United States, it's not a direct uh, universal suffrage either. You don't directly vote for the candidate you want. You vote for the um, for, you know, uh, an indirect system, which then selects the, the president of the United States. So how does Hong Kongers exactly choose their CE. What, help us understand the system a little bit. Hong Kongers choose through the election committee, uh, which has five sectors representing commerce, industry, finance, the professionals, the grassroots community organizations, uh, the Hong Kong branches of mainland organizations, and the political class, that is uh, legislators, uh, the 36 delegates to Hong Kong delegates to National People's Congress and the CPPCC members, members of the Chinese Political uh, Consultative Conference, you know. And it's actually similar to the UK or US system. The, the British Prime Minister is elected by the MPs, you know, he's not directly elected. The majority party chooses the leader and the leader becomes the, the Prime Minister. Similarly, in the, in the US, you know, the president is elected by the electoral college. Of course, you can say that the electors in the electoral college uh, are elected by popular ballot. But again, the pool of candidates is very limited. In the US, you need to have a lot of funds. We all know that if you cannot raise funds, you are out, you know. Again, even in the US, where you are supposed to have an open democratic system, the poor candidates are very limited, you know. They tend to come from 
a few families, the Kennedys, you know, the Clintons, you know, uh, and um, Trump's name is uh, popping up again and again. So everywhere, all over the world, people who are really qualified to take the reins at the top is very limited. Hong Kong is no different. And why the changes in March last year that made it necessary for the CE to be selected or elected in a different manner? Um, we've always, take the legislature, for example, we've always had a diversity of opinion. It's okay for some to be more liberal and others to be more conservative. That's fine. But over time, the so-called democratic bloc, they literally became anti-China, anti-China's sovereignty on Hong Kong, anti-government and, and actually anti-development. They voted against everything, anything to do a connection with the mainland, high-speed rail, national anthem, national uh, flag, you know, and uh, they voted even against funding and anti-epidemic funds to help those affected by COVID, you know, and they resorted to extreme filibuster tactics that held back government business. The government could not move forward to tackle a lot of really pressing livelihood problems, such as our extreme land and housing shortage. So we had to, Beijing had to overhaul our system, you know, and make sure those who are elected are true patriots in the sense that they do uphold the basic law and do bear allegiance to the special administrative region. It's as simple as that, you know. Uh, the um, reform uh, introduced last March introduced a mechanism for verifying the qualifications of the candidates to weed out those who only pay lip service uh, to our, our country and actually do all sorts of things that uh, oppose connection with our motherland. You know, that's not viable for Hong Kong. People would argue, though, that uh, um, in the subsector election, which is election to some members of the election committee, um, the result of the 1,500 members to the election committee is that uh, the so-called pro-democratic camp basically had very little representation for instance, some of the bigger parties that were in the so-called pro-democracy camp uh, did not participate in that election. So they were challenging the representativeness of the election committee. Um, although there were people who were against China, who were anti-China, who were calling for extreme uh, anti-China tactics and ideology, but there is, you cannot deny that, a large section of the Hong Kong society who are not happy with how things were being done or how their life was uh, progressing. How are their voices um, possibly heard and included in the future government? Um, members of the so-called pan-democratic bloc, some were um, screened out by the uh, um, qualification verification mechanism. Uh, some were being charged with national security offenses. Some simply choose, chose not to take part. It is their own choice because this is a new system. In future, when the system has settled down, I hope, I do hope that people who hold different opinions for myself, for example, they would participate. Over time, when people 
who hold different opinions for, from the pro-establishment blocker, uh, found out that the system, new system introduced actually works well for Hong Kong. We are moving ahead to solve a lot of practical problems like retirement protection. I hope they will participate uh, to speak for their constituents. I myself, I speak for the minorities. I speak for the LGBT uh, uh, people. Uh, I speak for the ethnic communities, you know. Uh, other sectors of the public, they are free to approach me or any of my colleagues to voice their concerns. Which direction is the city heading now? Because the outside critics are saying, look, there is less democracy, erosion of the democracy, grave concerns, so on and so forth. How do you see the, 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 the direction of the city now? Well, all these critics are purely commenting on democracy from the point of view of the process of selection. What we want to um, stress is the outcomes. Any political system is uh, welcomed by the people only if the system delivers the outcome sought by the people, like resolving our housing problem, our retirement protection problem, our wealth gap problem. You know, in the past, our, our political system had been too hobbled by infighting, bickering, you know, polarization, filibustering, so that we cannot get things done. We need to correct that. You know? In terms of fighting COVID, and we are opening up, you know, reconnecting with the rest of the world. But I think the new chief executive will still need to strive hard to uh, reopen our control points with mainland China and with Macau, you know, we are part of China, to be, you know, uh, isolated from the rest of our country. That is not sustainable long term. So while we want to reconnect with the rest of the world, we also want to reconnect with the mainland. And that is uh, the most pressing task of the new chief executive. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. That was my interview with Regina Iplau-Soki, who will start her new role as convener of the Executive Council on July the 1st of the Hong Kong SAR. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. <laughs> Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world.